Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Kim Milne and W Services are always in demand as a consultant. Over the course of a 40-year career, he's worked in more than a dozen countries and established a global reputation as a winemaker and blender. Listen to us chat about his upbringing on a farm in South Australia, his love of Chardonnay, the rise of the so-called flying winemakers in the 1990s, what it takes to be a good show judge, and why he never got to make wine in Albania. Hi, Kim. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Tim. Where are you right now? I'm in, um, at home in the Adelaide Hills. I, I work from my home office. So, um, yeah, in the very cold Adelaide Hills at the moment, middle of winter here. So it's been... Uh, and you've just been outside chopping up a tree, haven't you? you yes, farmer, yes, there was an op- Oh, yeah, there's an old um, yeah. We live on a bit of land in the hills, and an old pine tree fell down. So I've been on the chainsaw today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a bit like old times. You were brought up on a farm, weren't you, in South Australia? Whereabouts? Oh, a place called Mandala. It's a little town in the southeast of South Australia. So about, um, or in wine terms, it's about 100k north of Coonawarra, or about 30k north of Padthaway. Yeah, nice. And any vines on the farm? No, no, it was a small um, mixed farm, so it was sheep, cattle, um, cereal cropping, that type of thing. So no, no, no real exposure to wine until I left school, really. Yeah, so your parents weren't grape growers. No, 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 no um, farmers. So yeah, just a just a small mixed farm. I mean, when did you decide to become a winemaker then? Um, it's uh, well, I. I finished finished high school and enrolled in a science degree, uh, and then took a gap year because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, and my um, mother lived up in the Riverland, so I I sort of went travelling on a motorbike for a few months, and then ended up getting a job in a winery. Um, I think I was already a bit interested in it. I looked at food science as a degree, and then came across winemaking and. Wine just sounded a bit more interesting than milk powder, really. So, <laughs> so I uh, I went and worked in a winery in the cellar for a few months, and then um, reapplied for the winemaking degree. Um, you know, transferred instead of doing science, did the winemaking degree at Roseworthy College instead. Um, Roseworthy College is this very prestigious place. I mean, certainly today, I think it was then as well, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I, it was, I just yeah. wondered, you know, do you think that academic training was was important to you? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think it was, um, yeah, yeah. Just the, the, the whole scientific background of wine. I think if you're, a, particularly if a winemaker, or and over time now as a winemaking consultant, you know, I need to be across the, not just the, the tastings and the styles, but the science of it as well. So yeah, no, it was it was quite critical, really. And I was pretty much starting from scratch. I mean, I, you know, and what, what was the Aussie wine industry like in 1981 when you graduated? I mean, was it still Fortified wine focus in a way, and it was just kind of, kind of coming out of that, wasn't it? Yeah, no, it was. It, it was out of that. I was still making quite a bit of fortified wine, but it was very much a table wine, pretty much by then. Um, but it was quite different. I mean, I, I think um, my first job was at a, a winery called Berry Estates up in the Riverland for for three years. Um, it was the largest winery in the country at the time, 
um, and they only made their first Chardonnay, I think, in '81 or '82. Like there was no, there was very, almost no Chardonnay in Australia at that time, hmm. um, and we were still making. Um, cask wine called white burgundy chablis and riesling but there was no riesling in it it was made out of sultana and trebbiano and <laughs> just uh you know di- different white grapes so <laughs> white burgundy know, was, made from made from sultana i love it oh the white burgundy we used trebbiano that was that was that was you know that was pretty pretty smart in those days <laughs> uh, but yeah there was the the very first chardonnay they made was when up was when i was there yeah and was australia still very Kind of technology focused in a way. Um, yeah, certainly. I learned a lot of the what the, the technology of wine at at, at Roseworthy at college. Um, so yeah, I think it was. I think the big advances in the Australian wine industry in the sort of seventies and eighties with table wine was focused a lot around you know technology, refrigeration, cool ferments, um, selected yeasts, all that sort of thing. So that was all the sort of thing I learned about at Roseworthy. And then over time, you you know you sort of well, you don't unlearn that, but you you, learn, you, you broaden your, your outlook and start doing wild ferments and various other things. But when I was left Rosewithy, I don't think anybody in Australia would have been doing a wild ferment. <laughs> Whereas now it's, you know, it's it's very common, particularly in premium producers. Except by, except by mistake. Yeah, except by mistake. Yeah, well, there, was, there probably was a bit of that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you know, Barry Estates is... But um, they, Barry also made, made a lot of... They also made a lot of fortified wines still, and they had um, a lot of old, you know, we, we had 10, 20-year-old tawny ports and muskets, you know, 15, 20-year-old in barrel that would la- a little bit was sold under their label, but it was largely sold in, in bulk to other wineries. So, you know, it was quite interesting from that stage learning all about uh, those styles as well while I was, when I worked there. And I did working at this enormous great big winery in, in the Riverland, did that teach you that, Big can be beautiful too, or not? Oh, absolutely, yeah, and um, yeah. I mean, they uh, even though it was a Riverland winery, they used to win, you know, solid awards in wine shows and things. But I think the big plus for me starting out with Berry was the fact that it was so big. It it really did everything. It did a lot of cask wine, and that was its main focus was the cheaper end. But we did um, small batch barrel aged reds. Um, you know, um, whites. We did lots of um, high quality fortified wine. They made Norley Pra Vermouth under contract. We did brandy. So, in terms of getting a, a really good understanding of all different sorts of styles and options, it was fantastic. And um, the head winemaker at the time was Ian McKenzie, who was considered one of the top palates in Australia and was sort of one of the leading show judges at the time. So, you know, being able to taste with him and, and, uh, and that uh, that was a terrific learning curve, actually. Yeah, I mean, your second job, and I think it's where I got to know you first, was at Villa Maria in, in New Zealand, and the growth and and dynamism of that company under George Fistinich, now Sir George Fistinich, obviously, w- was incredible. I mean, what was it that made Villa so so successful? Um, well, I think George's passion, really, um, and he's willing to to have a go. George was always. Um, like the company had to be profitable, obviously, but he was more about making the best wine we could make and and being seen as the highest quality winery in the country rather than focusing on how much money could be made. Um, obviously, when you're successful, the, the profits follow, but George was very much about the wine, the wine making, the quality. Um, and he also 
would recognise talent and, you know, gave people an opportunity. I mean, I went there as an assistant winemaker. The winemaker left after 12 months and I think at the age of, what was I, 25 or 26, I was the winemaker in charge of Villa Maria and then when I was 27, I suppose, he put me in charge of all three wineries in the group. So, you know, that opportunity wouldn't have been available to me in Australia for many more years after that. Mm. And actually the the CFO, the finance guy at the time was was 26 as well. So we were the two senior people under George in the in the company and we were 26 years old. So, <laughs> you know, he was um, – and but, you know, you, you worked very hard for George. He had a great way of getting everybody fired up and passionate and uh, – yeah, it was, a, it was a great time. I ended up staying nine, nearly ten years at Villa Maria. And when you were there, you passed the Master of Wine exam at the first attempt. Um, yeah. I just wonder what, what made you want to do it, really. I mean, I think you were the second Aussie to pass it, weren't you? Yes, I was, yeah. Um, well, I was living in New Zealand at the time, so that they counted me as the third New Zealander, which I had to point out to the fact that I might live there, but I was an Australian. <laughs> but... Um, I think it was just to broaden my outlook a bit. I mean, when I studied at Roseworthy in the late 70s, um, it was very much Australian wine focused, um, very little exposure to imported wines, imported wine styles. You know, it was all about producing winemakers for the Australian market. And in those days, Australia didn't export much at all. Like it was very much focused on that. So, um, you know, I went to New Zealand. It was sort of the early days of New Zealand. But I just – I start, um in probably the mid to late 80s, Villa Maria started their first exports to the UK and I um, did a lot of the travel for that and, you know, the winemaker dinners and the tastings and I think I got much more exposure to wines of the world then and that sort of sparked my interest. Um, mm. I looked at doing an MBA um, and or the MW and I just thought the MW seemed a lot more interesting really. Um, <laughs> and it was, But it was mainly just to broaden my outlook and and opened me up to other styles of wine you know I was very much a technical sort of trained Aussie winemaker and um, by doing the MW I tasted wines that I probably would never would have tasted and you know just uh, it opened my eyes to a lot of different possibilities in winemaking as well really so but it was really just for personal interest I suppose. Uh, and what advice would you give to somebody sitting the exam today? Oh <laughs> um Good luck. <laughs> no, I think um, you get, you've got to be passionate. You've got to you've got to have the passion and really love wine to want to do the MW. If you're doing it just for you know for furthering your career or whatever, I, I think you know you really have to. It's it's a, it's such a big uh, a big commitment in terms of tasting, um, financial commitment as well, obviously, and time commitment to to do it. So. I was very f fortunate to have passed on the first attempt. I'm not sure <laughs> how many times I would have gone back and done it. If I, I, had I did too, and I think the same thing. I think I think once is enough. <laughs> yeah, I can remember uh, when the exams finished, and I was sitting outside. I think I finished the last essays before everybody else, and I went and sat outside, and I was completely shattered. You know, five days of exams. I remember sitting there, think thinking at the time. I mean, I probably would have changed my mind, but thinking, oh, I hope I pass this because I'm not sure I want to go through that again. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you know, in 1992, you know, you left New Zealand and you started working as a consultant in Europe. And your first job, I think, was was in Hungary, wasn't it? I mean, not long after the fall of the Berlin Wheel, obviously three years. What was Eastern Europe like then? Um, yeah, it, it, 
quite, well, very different to what it is now. When I first went into Hungary, um, it was, you know, I was picked up in a larder and the only cars on the road were larders and trabants. Um, and it was, uh, you know, like very, I don't know how, how to describe it. Yeah, it was just, well, I mean, for me, it was very different anyway. Um, and then I uh, just did a, I thought I was going into Hungary to do a two-week assessment on a winery and, and make some recommendations and write a report, which I did. And then um, it was a large winery, Balaton Boglar, down on Lake Balaton. Um, and then at the end of it, they said, oh, you have to stay for vintage now, make the wine. And I said, well, I can't. I've got a contract um, organised. I'm doing a vintage in Bordeaux. Um, so they said, well, you have, you know, we want you to, to help us. So I, I organised a young winemaker from New Zealand who was Warren Gibson, actually, who's the winemaker at Trinity Hill Winery these days. He has his own Balancha brand. I organised him to come over and do the vintage. I wrote specifications of what I wanted done and what the plans were. And we were just doing trials, well, large trials, because it was a very large winery. But I think we made about 50,000 cases of wine, actually, across only about four or five wines. Um, and Warren came in and uh, made the wine based on the specifications I'd left. And we were in contact, you know, over the phone as the vintage progressed. I went back and did the blending and then um, um, Sainsbury's came out and first visit and bought the lot. So <laughs> I thought, well, that's not a bad way to go. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. It was Bullseye. That was a good start. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the winery was, I mean, it, was, it had only just changed under the <laughs> um, under the old um, communist system, basically. Their markets were, was mainly Russia and everything was set up to get the lowest possible price so it was all about throughput and volume and and you know massive vineyards and it was um yeah it was there was some pretty basic wine handling going on so we just introduced i just introduced some quite simple you know measures to to try and make the wines brighter and fresher and obviously the buyer thought that was the case so they because they bought it so mm. I mean, that was kind of the era of, of the so-called flying winemakers, yeah? Um, yeah, beginning, yeah. really. I mean, did you think of yourself as, as one of them? Do you like the term, flying winemaker? Oh, yeah, I don't mind the term. I mean, I essentially, so yeah, after I did Hungary and then went and did a vintage in Bordeaux, I was approached by um, International Wine Services, which was actually a division of a big company at the time, um, to come over and be their winemaker. And they said, you can go anywhere in the world as find somewhere exciting where you think you can improve the quality of wine and and then we'll try and market it to the trade. So for me that wanted just uh, my plan was to see the world for a couple of years and work in different wine regions. I thought, you know, this is too good an opportunity to miss and I enjoyed it so much I ended up staying for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think flying winemakers are still relevant today? Uh, oh, look, I, I think there's probably some importing companies that still have a winemaker that, that goes out and works with their suppliers, but it's um, perhaps a little bit less so. I mean, Eastern Europe had only just opened up, so there was opportunities there. Um, South Africa had just opened up. It was pre-Mandela being elected, actually. So that was my first flying winemaker project was in South Africa um, and um, in 1993 and made wine in three cooperatives there um, and, you know, in, in a style that I thought, was sort of UK market friendly and thankfully it, that worked and so away we went. And so South Africa was a really big market. I, at one stage I had I think four or five 
projects running there where I'd put winemakers in for the vintage um, with my specifications and I'd fly backwards and forwards and check it was all going well and we'd make the wine and sell it into the UK market. Mm. I suppose it's the question, interesting question is what makes a good and a bad consultant? I mean, you're a very good one. You're very successful. I mean, how sensitive you need to be to people's egos, especially when they've made lots of money doing other things? Um, yeah, you have to be. Yeah, there's a certain amount of people skills involved as well as winemaking skills. But, I mean, generally it, it varies. I mean, now I work more just purely as a consultant. This The flying winemaker was a little different in that we were saying to the winery, you let us take your grapes and, and we'll make the wine and then we'll sell it. So that was slightly different than just advising the, the winery, if you see what I mean. These days I work as a consultant and it really it, – you've got to listen to what your client wants, you know. You can't just go in and – advise them to make it the style that you think you would like to make if they are talking about a different a certain style they want to make then you try and mm-hmm. help them to make that um i think in general people listen and take my recommendations on what i think is the best styles they can make but you have to be sensitive to what what they want it's not about you it's about your mm-hmm. customer really well and i suppose they wouldn't employ you unless they wanted to listen to you right yeah no exactly yeah Whereas with the flying winemaker thing, that wasn't always the case. I'm mean, actually the interesting one. That very first one I ever did in Hungary, um, it was the marketing people that had had um, had bought me in, not the not the winemakers. So <laughs> it was um, they were trying to sell their wine into the UK market, and they'd basically been told that their quality was was nowhere near up to scratch. And someone in the UK, I'm not sure who now actually, rec- must have recommended me as a consultant. So they got me over. I thought just to write the report, and then. Um, and the head winemaker there was was quite traditional sort of guy, and he was quite put out that they'd got someone in. But anyway, once so that was a that proved a little bit challenging at times. <laughs> I managed I managed to I managed to win him over, and we um, yeah, and the project was a success. So. I mean, of all these countries you've worked in, which did you like the most, and which was the hardest as well of the places you worked? I mean, some of these Eastern European places probably quite tough, were they? Yeah, some of them. Some of the Eastern European ones were quite tricky. I did a project in Romania once, only for one year, um, and it was yeah, pretty hard conditions, and and um, yeah, but there was there was quite a few issues. I mean, we made the wine and we sold it, but it was just um, I didn't, I wasn't that happy with the wine, um, and. It was just difficult, really. Um, whereas Bulgaria, I worked uh, the winery there. I think we had a, I had a project there for maybe oh, must have been seven or eight years uh, making white wine in Bulgaria because there was lots of red wine coming into the UK. So we identified if we could get a a, a reasonably bright, fresh white, then there'd be a market. And it, it was that that was a successful project, and that went really well. And that was in pretty rough conditions. But it was it's more about the attitude of the people. The winemaker there was was really up for it, um, really keen to, you know, get some input from outside and cooperated with every, what, everything I wanted to do, you know. So it was a success. The Romanian one, it was, it was more, <laughs> it was more. let's say it's more of a struggle. Um, in terms of favourite places, I really enjoyed working survival. in Italy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> survival, exactly. I loved working in Italy. Um, mm. uh, just, I, I just like, just the culture and the... You always got incredibly well fed when you're in Italy, but um, just worked with some really terrific people. The Cantalay family down in Puglia was the first project I did. Started in '93, I think, and um, 
they were just it was a family winery such a terrific family and augusto was quite a progressive winemaker for the area anyway and um we just got on extremely well and it was a very successful project plus i had projects in sicily trentino and i worked with the czechies in tuscany when they bought a small winery in maremma and that was quite a fun project as well just tell us how you describe your your winemaking style. I'm also interested in in how you avoid applying a recipe. Really, how do you stay fresh in what you do? Um, good question. I think um, well, I think I stay fresh because I I have clients that I've had for years, but I have new clients fairly regularly. So I work in working in new regions, different regions, different people from time to time, which is always interesting. I don't think you can apply a recipe. I mean, one of my clients is in the Hunter Valley where the grapes ripen in January, <laughs> um, whereas another client in Mount Benson in the cooler part of South Australia and also the Adelaide Hills, we will still be picking we'll, – we'll, they'll, they'll finish harvest in the Hunter before we start in – even start harvest here in the hills. So you can't just apply a standard recipe to – a, a, such a warm climate as that to a then to another winery in a cool climate and even within regions the vineyards produce different different fruit different quality levels um you know so i don't ever think winemaking is really so much of a recipe you, you have to assess what you've got and then work out how best to handle it and your style um i think uh over the years i think my styles become well per personally for wines that you know i'm making that i'd like I'd, i think my styles become a bit, a bit more restrained in the early days when i was at villa it was all about big rich ripe super ripe chardonnays lots of new oak that type of thing um bigger was better i suppose um and i think working through working in europe and 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 other countries south africa south america i think i've over the years i've gradually learned the importance of um, elegance subtlety complexity that sort of thing um, often when i'm consulting with people i'll be reducing the amount of new oak they're using rather than increasing it <laughs> um, so yeah just balance elegance i think is what i look for in wine generally and, and how many people do you consult for now i just wondered also you know how, how you choose them and are most of them in australia because that's where you live yeah, um, most in Australia. I think I've got uh, about 10 clients at the moment um, or, you know, 10 full-time re like regular clients. Um, there'd be eight in New Zealand uh, – uh, sorry, eight in Australia, um, probably three, four in the Adelaide Hills, one in Mount Benson, um, and then um, uh, Hunters in New Zealand uh, in Marlborough. Um, I was consulting with Craggy Range for about in Hawke's Bay as well for about three years, but then COVID came along and it just wasn't practical. So that one stopped due to COVID. Um, and Rustenburg in South Africa, I still consult for, even though I haven't been able to visit them for a couple of years. Um, I'm actually going back there uh, next month um, uh, consulting again. So, um, yeah, so it's Australia, New Zealand and, and South Africa really, but the majority in Australia. I mean, you lived in England for a long time. Again, saw lots of you when you were here and it was great. I just wonder what made you move back to Australia and why did you choose to live and work, in some cases, in the Adelaide Hills? Uh, yeah, no, a number of reasons. The International Wine Services, the company that we had um, in England, um, the, it was a very small company and we did a 
management buyout, I think, the second year I was there. Um, so it was our company. We we grew it. Um, it was we made we we're making and selling a lot of a lot of wine, um, and then we sold it to Scottish Newcastle Breweries. So I um, into their wine division. So I just felt like it was it was time to move on. I was locked in for three years um, with the new company as part of the buyout deal because I was, you know, generating a lot of the income. Um, and we had three boys in England that were all born in England. They were nine, seven, and six. And I just it was probably family as much as anything. I wanted them to get to know their grandparents better. You know, we used to bring them back for a Christmas visit from time to time. But mm. so it was largely about family, I think, um, and just felt like I needed a change. I'd done the, the flying winemaker thing for a while. The Adelaide Hills always appealed to me for a number of reasons. I like, I had a, after my experience in New Zealand, I enjoy cool climate winemaking. So Adelaide Hills was logical for that reason. Um, it's, I think it's a, lifestyle-wise, it's a great place to live. It's right on the edge of the city. So I, I live um, 30 minutes drive from the centre of Adelaide. Um, I live on 30 acres of land um, and it's very rural. So there's not many places in the world you can live that close to a city of a million people and live in the country and get into the city in 30 minutes. So lifestyle-wise, it's, um, it's just a great place, I think. Tell us a little bit about the terroir and the climate of the Adelaide Hills. You've said it's a cool climate. I just wonder also if that's changing with, with climate change now. Yeah, I, when I say cool climate, cool by Australian standards, probably it's 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 um it's a really interesting climate. The Adelaide Hills actually, the vineyards generally are between three and six hundred meters above sea level. So there's an old range of mountains that runs right up through Clare actually, and right up into the Mount Lofty ranges, um, that uh, into the Flinders ranges. I mean, uh, but it's um, the vineyards being grown at altitude. It is what makes it cool. So during the day, we're probably only two or three degrees in summer, cooler than, say, Adelaide, the Adelaide Plain, the city, or the Barossa Valley. But at night, our, our night temperatures are 12 to 14 degrees cooler, and that makes a massive difference. Um, mm. It helps you, you retain a lot more acidity. Um, it's great for freshness. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just a – and because it's a, it's a very old – mountain range you know very old undulating fairly gentle slopes um there's all sorts of variations of of site and aspect um you know you've got north facing south facing um sort range of soil types so it's a really really interesting area and not many people realize but it's actually in terms of the the area of the adelaide hills it's it's twice the size of the barossa valley um but in terms of production, it's less than half because the vineyards are, are you know, are, are spread throughout the hills, whereas the Barossa Valley is almost wall-to-wall vineyards. So there's a there's a, a quite a big variation between the northern and the central part of the Adelaide Hills. Um, for instance, if you're picking Shiraz from the northern boundary of the Adelaide Hills, it would probably be harvested three weeks earlier than say the central part, sometimes four weeks. So it's a dramatic difference in climates within the Adelaide Hills. So that just makes for just really interesting winemaking, really. 
Mm. I mean, one of the wines you make there is is obviously Chardonnay, uh, and uh, it's interesting that you once described Chardonnay as your favourite grape and and the grape that you enjoy making most. It's a grape that gets a bad rap sometimes, you know, kind of anything but Chardonnay, ABC, all that stuff. I mean, what inspires you about it, and why does it get such a bad reputation? Do you think? I think the bad reputation came from the um, the style that became popular in the probably in the eighties. Uh, 80s, 90s, where it was all, you know, super ripe, the bigger the better, lots and lots of oak, and the, and the Chardonnays became very heavy, very fat sort of wines. Um, I think now in most countries, certainly in Australia, the, the styles changed, people pick earlier, elegance and complexity and, and length and texture are much more important. So I think that was partly it got a bad rap. Um Partly why it did. Why do I love it? I, I it's probably one of my favourite wines to drink personally. <laughs> so um, it's got an incredible array of, of styles and options. Um, and when it's done well, I particularly like cooler climate Chardonnays. But when it's done well, it's I, I don't think there's a better white wine really. Hmm. And do you have a favourite red grape? Um, Look, it varies a bit, to be honest. I enjoy making Shiraz in the Adelaide Hills and in the Barossa Valley, completely different styles. I've got a client, a couple of, a few clients in the Adelaide Hills and also one in the Barossa. Um, you know, the, for cool climate, elegant styles to, to much richer, fuller styles. I mean, both quite legitimate styles of Shiraz um, and, you know, require different handling, et cetera. Um, no, I think I enjoy just high quality um in a number of different red grapes. And actually this year I've just, for the first time, I'm making a bit of Barbera and Gamay for one of my clients, very small batch. I've never made either variety before, so I'm really enjoying that at the moment. So I'm sort of starting to get into those two. So it, it varies depend on, depending on what I'm doing and where I am, I suppose. And what about Cabernet Sauvignon? Because you kind of made your name with that as well, haven't you? Yeah, uh, certainly in at the days of, uh, with Villa Maria, um, we were making some really good Bordeaux blends out of Hawke's Bay. Um, and Hawke's Bay has become one of the, you know, one of the great areas for for, ele- for elegant sort of Cabernet Merlot-based wines. Um, and with Rustenburg in South Africa, particularly, their focus in that is a, is a is uh, it's a Cabernet dominant vineyard and and you know Bordeaux blend style. So um, do a lot of work with Cabernet there, and yeah, the wines are terrific. I think at Rustenburg. Hmm. No, I agree with that. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about awards. I mean, I've lost count of the number of awards you won. It, you know, it fills up a page of your bio, basically. <laughs> I just wonder if these things are still are still important to you. And I also wanted to ask you a little bit about points and reviews from critics. I mean, do you take us seriously? You know, if you get a bad score, do you think, oh, God, bloke didn't understand my, my wine at all? Or do you just take the good with the bad? Yeah, yeah. What, what, what's, that, what's that clown doing? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I do take them. I do, do do take them seriously. And if you get a, if you do, you know, if you've got a client that gets a bad score on something, then usually we'll get it out and look at it and say, what didn't they like about it, and do we agree or don't we agree? So, yeah, I mean, you do take. Mm. I do take notice. Um, in terms of awards, I mean, I don't chase awards. I've been very pleased to to pick up awards from time to time. Um, and as a yeah, I work for myself now as a as a consultant. You know, I don't employ anybody. It's just me. So, you know, winning an award keeps your your name <laughs> your name out and about. Um, keeps people interested in in using your services. So, yeah, I think it's I think it is important. It's um, I, 
these days I tend to be more in the background. I think I'm not I'm not the chief winemaker for any particular winery. I work with the winemakers at a number of different wineries to try and improve their quality. So, you know, I think the days of of winning awards are, are, are past, really. <laughs> but it's um, you know, I'm more a background <laughs> a background advisor than the front man, I suppose, these days. In most cases, um, the project I'm working mm-hmm. with in the Barossa, yeah. I, I oversee the winemaking there, and we've just Actually, we just picked up the trophy at the International Wine Challenge for Best Barossa Shiraz for Golden Amrita, which was um, which we're really pleased with. It's a brand, brand new winery. It's only their second vintage they've produced. So, yeah, that was that was fantastic. In fact, I think that's one I'm going to taste with you later. Ah, good. I mean, you're also a very distinguished show judge. I mean, incredible track record of all these shows you've judged at. There's a couple of things I want to ask you. One was what makes a good judge? I mean, how flexible do you need to be? And also what you've learned from tasting blind over the years? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I enjoy judging. I'm gradually doing a little bit less of it these days. But um, it's, um, yeah, I think it's, yeah, well, obviously, you need to have a good palate. Um, you need to be, you know, have the stamina to taste a lot of wine over a number of days. Um, but yeah, you certainly do have to be flexible. I mean, if you're in a panel of with two other judges, or usually in Australia, there's three judges. Other places I've judged, there's, there can be more. Um, you know, if you have an opinion on a wine, and and the other two or three or four people in the panel all think it's great, and you're not so keen, then you state your case and say why you don't think, and everybody has a look. But Essentially, you have to be willing to move your score if everybody else thinks it's a really good wine and you haven't pointed it as well. You have to have some flexibility. Otherwise, you'd never really get results in a wine show. So, yeah, being um, being convinced that you're always right and everybody else is wrong is not a not a trait that goes well <laughs> with wine judging. And what have you learned from tasting blind? Uh, I, it, in, I, it's, I think, tasting blind really for a fair assessment is the, the only real way to do things. I mean... Uh, every, everybody is influenced by a label um, and I know myself if I know what the wine is and it's highly rated I, it, you know unless you tend to have a more favourable <laughs> opinion of it so w- with my consultancies with um, you know when we're looking at say different coopers different barrels um, I always get my clients to um, say right well let's let's taste them blind we don't taste them knowing that this is the D&J barrel and that's the Sigamarone barrel and that's the because people will have the, then form their opinion of it and that definitely influences what you taste so when we're assessing different barrels we'll have say there's five coopers we'll have five glasses of wine all of the same wine out of five different barrels and I taste with the winemaker or winemakers we taste them blind we take notes say which one we like and what you know what our preferences are and why and we do all of that before we then know what the barrel is and that's the only real way to objectively to objectively you know evaluate and the same with different yeast strains with all sorts of things so i use blind tasting a lot in my consultancy yeah it's very useful as if you're a consultant yeah yeah absolutely well it's critical i think because you know i'm as susceptible as anybody else to you know, when you know what something is, it, it, it does influence your taste. Absolutely, it does. Tell us one thing. I mean, you've made wine. I've lost count of the number of countries you've made wine, and you probably have too, I think. But is there anywhere in the world you haven't made wine you'd like to? I wonder, China maybe? Yeah, possibly. England? Yeah, po- possibly China. Um, England England would be fun. Um, 
it's um, yeah. I, I mean, I'm always interested in new consultancy projects. I was approached recently to do a consultancy in Turkey, actually, but um, it didn't end up end up happening. But that would have been interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I enjoy the challenge of new places. I don't have anywhere one place specifically that I would like to work, but I've certainly been to. I've actually visited lots of countries when I was doing the fly wine making, looking at projects and deciding that there wasn't the potential there. Um, but um, yeah, well, I, like where? Uh, I would have <laughs> one of the funniest ones was I went out to um, Albania. It was in the early days of the well, a few years into the flying wine making, and basically, if you could go to a country that had just opened up and make something that was more that was drinkable and certainly better than a lot of the countries behind the Iron Curtain were making, um, the UK trade was particularly keen to to be the you know the supermarkets were particularly keen to be the first one with a you know a Hungarian wine or a Bulgarian white or whatever. So I went to Albania and um, it was uh, there was no there was no the phones weren't operating in the country. Uh, we had a contact there who had a contact with a winery. We hired a got a driver and drove over the mountains to this region that was a wine region. Um, it was supposedly the best winery in the country, like it was the showpiece, and it was pretty rudimentary. But it was, you know, we could have done something there, and we were just going to make a white and red um, from the local grape varieties. Met with the winemakers, um, the two uh, female winemakers, and I was going through a translator, and um, I'd say to the translator, "Is it possible?" You know, I was talking to him about the winemaking, and this is what I'd like to do. Is it possible to do this? And um, they'd come back and say, da, and shake their head, you know, as if they were saying no. And the interpreter would say to me, yes. And I went, oh. So then I asked another question, same thing, shake of the head. It was only after a, little, it was only after a while I realised that in, uh, in that part of the world, shaking your head from side to side means yes. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we... Um, we got we we got through all that, and it was all agreed that we were going to do the project, and we agreed the date that we'd come back. And I organised a winemaker to um, to come over from Australia, uh, Virginia Wilcox. Actually, you would know Virginia; yeah, yeah. she's the winemaker of Vas Felix yeah. these days. So Virginia came over. There was no way of communicating directly with them in the meantime. So we got on the plane and we flew down to Albania. We got to our contact in, in Tirana in the city and same thing, we found a driver and went over the mountains and it took a day to find the people, you know, because the, um, they um, they weren't at the winery anyway. We finally got them to come in and have a meeting and they said, oh, we didn't really think you were, we didn't really believe that you were going to come back so we've picked all the grapes and we've made Raki out of it, which is the local brandy. <laughs> Oh, no. so, so I had a winemaker. I had a winemaker. I had a winery, but I didn't have any grapes. <laughs> so that 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 was one of my least less successful attempts. But it was but it was interesting. Oh, what a great story! Listen, final question: How did you get away from wine? Now, I know at one point you were busy doing triathlons. You told me some great stories about that. Or is it is wine your main focus now? Um, oh, wine's a huge part of my life for sure. It's what it's what I do. It's also a passion. Um, you know, I still go to tasting events and stuff out of interest rather than professional things. Um, but you, well, I suppose a bit of both. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy. Uh, I've been doing quite a bit of hiking with my wife in the last few years, particularly with COVID and international travel off the off the agenda. She's doing a walking something called the Hyson Trail with a girlfriend 
uh, bit by bit. It's a 1,300-kilometre trail that goes from the southern part of the Fleury Peninsula below McLaren Vale right up through the Bross Rupert clear and up into the Flinders Ranges. So I've been doing a bit of hiking. Um, I haven't done any triathlons for a few years, but um, I've got a bit of a dodgy knee these days. So, <laughs> But I just did a cycle trip from Florence to Rome with some mates in Italy. So I try and I play a bit of golf. So I mean, I do other things as well as wine, but um, snow skiing is a bit of a passion. Um, so yeah, try and, try and keep active. But uh, yeah, wine, so wine is certainly a big part of my life for sure. Fantastic. Listen, Kim, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, the phone line behaved more or less. We, we we managed to hear most of what we were saying to each other. It's been great talking yeah, yeah. to you and I hope to see you soon, either in Australia, All right. uh, maybe, who knows, in South Africa or if not in UK. Yeah, look forward to it. Top guy, Kim, and apologies for the slightly wobbly connection from the Adelaide Hills. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Andrew Mullineux from Mullineux Family Wines in South Africa. See you then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at TimAtkinMW. See you next week. <laughs>